even in the painful moments when you could relax into feeling feeling feels good sadness feels good anger feels good if fighting against it doesn't feel good but actually being in it you know not for everybody not all the time but more than we would think actually feels kind of good welcome to voices of esalen i'm sam stern my guest today is peter bregman peter is the best-selling author of leading with emotional courage and a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, PBS, ABC, CNN, and NPR. Peter is an extremely successful leader, executive coach, and public speaker. And in a conversation that occurred several months ago at the Esalen Institute, before the global pandemic foisted itself upon us, we discussed authenticity and leadership, the real meaning of emotional courage, how to skillfully engage in difficult conversations, why asking for feedback helps to build internal strength, and how to minimize the gap between what we want and what we do. Peter Bregman, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written the book, Leading with Emotional Courage. I wanted to ask you if you could start off by talking about the difference between emotional courage and emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence is huge, right? Like it's, you know, people have been talking about emotional intelligence for a few decades. And... Um, I haven't really seen a huge difference in people's emotional intelligence in general, right? So, like, I'm asking this question, like, wow, we've been talking about it for a long time. We have programs on it. We're, like, you know, spent a lot of time and energy and money developing emotional intelligence or working on emotional intelligence. Why hasn't anything changed? So emotional intelligence is, like, you could think of it as a two-by-two two matrix. And it's what I see and what I do in relation to myself and in relation to you. So it's like, what do I know about myself and what do I do? And what do I know about you and how do I interact with you? So it's what do I know on the one side and what do I do on the other side? So if you have a high emotional intelligence, then the two are correlated. So you, well, not necessarily correlated because what I know is a self-awareness. So they're two different things. So what I might be aware of in this moment is I might know about myself that I'm coming off in a very arrogant way, right? Or I might like, there's a self-awareness. And then, you know, what I choose to do to regulate myself, to manage myself, or what I choose to do in relationship to you in conversation and communication might come off of that self-awareness or that other awareness. I could read in you, oh, you know, you're, you know, Sam's a little uncomfortable here. What can I then do to make you comfortable, right? So, so the self-awareness informs the action. Okay. And if you were able to adjust the situation, then at that point you would have a high emotional intelligence? Yeah. So high emotional intelligence ultimately would be, I've got the awareness and I have capability of controlling and managing myself and an ability to sort of manage our social relationship. So that's, that's a, in a nutshell, that's emotional intelligence. But there is this huge gap between what we know and what we do, right? A huge gap. And here's how I like to think of it. Think of a difficult conversation you're not having. Can you think of one? You have one in mind? Yeah, I have one in mind. Great. I'm not going to make you say it out loud. Don't worry. <laughs> but so, and, and for anyone listening, like do this with us, right? Think of a difficult conversation you're not having. Now, think about why you're not having that conversation. I bet you know everything you need to know to have that conversation. I bet you're perfectly skilled enough to have that conversation. And I bet you've had time and opportunity. So that's what we usually solve for. When we're not doing something, we usually solve for, well, what do I have to learn? And what skills do I have to develop? And you know, what, how do I have to manage myself and my time? But the truth is, those are not the things that stop us. 
right? If those are the things that stopped us, given that you have everything that you know and you have the skills and you have time and opportunity, you would have had that conversation, but you haven't. And the reason is because there's something you don't want to feel. And if you have that hard conversation, you might have to feel conflict. You might have to feel disconnection. You might have to feel the risk of the other person leaving. You might have to feel the risk of hurting them. They might come back at you and you might be hurt. You might have to feel defensiveness, your own or their defensiveness or anger. And you don't want to feel any of that. You might have to feel shame or embarrassment. And if you don't want to feel it, you're not going to do the thing that is likely to make you feel it. So you're going to stop. And if you are willing to feel everything, if you're willing to feel the shame and the embarrassment and the weird passive aggressiveness that comes after having a conversation, if you're willing to feel their hurt or your hurt, if you're willing to feel everything, right, then you can do anything. The piece that emotional intelligence is missing is the emotional part, right? Like it's all very intellectual. What do I know? And it's very action oriented. What do I do? But not what do I feel? And in fact, we cannot be emotionally intelligent in action unless we're emotionally courageous. We cannot act based on what we know unless we're willing to feel the things that are difficult to feel. But we will have to feel if we take those actions. So to me, emotional intelligence is interesting and emotional courage closes the gap that exists and prevents us from acting on what we know. What's a difficult conversation that you've had to confront in the past and how did you use emotional courage in order to step into that? So um, I was in the hot tubs uh, at Esalen and someone made a comment that I immediately, like it was an offhanded, quick, not thinking little joke, but it hurt me. I kind of felt the sting of it. My immediate reaction was to, um, to sort of shut down. Yeah. Right. And eventually leave the hot tub. Now, it was an innocent. It was like a little comment. Right. It was someone I know well, but it was a little comment, a little joke. But it but it stung. So I left hot tub. And then I thought about it uh, afterwards. And I thought, huh. So, you know, I, I so there's a number of things I didn't want to feel. First of all, I didn't want to feel the sting of the hurt. Right. I didn't want to admit that I was hurt. I I want to feel powerful. And that feels really vulnerable you know, what we all know and what I teach and what, you know, is very clear is that there is tremendous power in vulnerability. But in that moment, it doesn't feel like that, right? In that moment of vulnerability, it feels, to me, it could feel very weak, very like, oh, you hurt me. And it was a little innocent comment and, you know, and, and still it hurt me and it shouldn't have to hurt me because I, I should be above, but I'm not above that and it hurt me. And so, so, so there was a lot of things that were difficult to feel there. I had to feel, I had to not, in my sense, not lose my power while still also feeling my vulnerability. That was hard for me to do. I had to confront a friend about something that they said that they didn't mean to be hurtful. So I didn't want to make a huge deal of something, but it actually felt big to me, but it was a little comment. So maybe I'm making too big. So all these things are going around. It's the smallest little thing. It's an interaction that in some ways you know, in existentially doesn't matter, right? Like, and yet it it impacted me in this way. And so, uh, you know, I had to feel all of those things and I had to sit with it. And then I had to say, okay, so, you know, normally I might just brush it off, but I don't want to brush it off. And I went to the person and I said, you know, you said this thing and it was hurtful and it, it hurt me, it stung. 
and I had to now, so I had to feel a lot of things. I had to not go into a whole lot of story. I had not to explain everything. You know, I know you didn't mean anything by it. And it's not this big thing and blah, 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 right? And now we're all in our heads and we're talking. So I had to like feel my own hurt. I had to be willing to feel their reaction, whatever it might be. I, I had to stand in my own power around this and also my compassion for what might be happening for them. So... I, you know, and eventually I was able to go to them and say, you know, you said this thing and, and it hurt me and, and even feel my own tears to say it, it, it I, I can't even necessarily explain why it hurt me. You know why? I'll tell you, I mean, now it hurt me because there was some truth in it, right? If there was no truth in it, it wouldn't have hurt me. So a willingness to feel all of that, that's what it takes to bridge that gap between what I know and what I do, which is to sit and say, I want to repair our relationship because there's been a break in our relationship and I'm really close with you and I really like you. I love you. And and it's, and our, unless we have this conversation, there's going to be this weird thing between us. ask you about the mechanics of the conversation. I heard, I've heard you say that with difficult conversations, start with the punchline. Uh, in this in this particular conversation, um, the punchline was, you said something that hurt me. And you pretty much got to that within minute one. Minute one. Yeah. You said something hurt me. Here's what I could have done. I went in the hot tub and, you know, I, you, you said this thing. I, I know it didn't, it wasn't important. It was like an offhanded thing. And we were both, you know, just finished massages and we were kind of relaxed. And, you know, my wife was in the hot tub also. And you remember that? Okay. Yeah. And anyway, it was fun. And we were sitting there and, 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 you know, and I could talk for 15 minutes because it's scary to say that part, which is you said something that hurt me. Or we can skip the 15 minutes and I could just say, you said something that hurt me. And now we're in the conversation. Yeah. And now we could really be in the conversation. So I, I think you're always better off starting with the punchline. And then, and you've cut out like all the jabber. And you can have real relationship in real conversation with people. Well, let me ask you this. How do we cross the Rubicon? How do we screw up the courage in order to deliver that punchline when we might not be good at engaging in these difficult conversations. Okay, I mean, so even talking about this right now. Makes you nervous? Yeah, it feels like a little <laughs> bit of anxiety because I'm yeah. picturing in my head my yeah. difficult conversation. Right, right. It. So here's, here's um, I'm going to use another uh, Esalen analogy or metaphor. So I like to go in the hot tub in the morning and then go into the cold tub. Now, there's a couple of ways you could do that, right? You could like step a toe in the cold tub and the cold tub's cold, right? I mean, it's like cold and it's winter and cold and you can like step a toe and then another toe and then like slowly get in and it's super painful and it'll take 15 minutes just to get in. And by the time you're halfway in, you're already in hypothermia. Or you could get out of the hot tub and just plunge yourself into the cold tub and it will sting and it'll hurt and then you can kind of sit there and, and be in it for 30 seconds, a minute and then get out. And so like, I, that's how I believe we should be in these conversations. Now, I don't think we should do them unskillfully. Meaning I, you know, it's, 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 um, I could just come in and say, Hey, you know what? You're a jerk, right? 
So I can come in with blame or I can come in. It helps to be skilled in having the conversation so that the other person can meet you there, can receive it, right? We are responsible in many ways to initiate and have conversations that can hold the space for the conversation to be had. But I would say there's like the feeling, the image I want in your head is go from a hot tub to a really cold tub. And there's only so much you can do to prepare yourself for it. The, the idea behind the question in some ways is how can we do it in a way that doesn't, where we don't feel so much? And my answer a little bit is you got to feel like that's the emotional courage part, which is any way you cut it, you're like any way you do it. Yes, do it skillfully, but you're going to feel things. And the one thing I want to say about that, too, is even in the painful moments, when you could relax into feeling, feeling feels good. Sadness feels good. Anger feels good. If fighting against it doesn't feel good. The, the, the 20 minutes of conversation before it doesn't feel good. That anticipation doesn't feel But actually being in it, if we could relax in it, actually feels, you know, not for everybody, not all the time, but more than we would think, actually feels kind of good. imagine too that repetition uh, would be helpful that the more difficult conversations that you steel yourself to engage in the kind of better that you become at it the more used to this process of jumping into it with both feet you get 100% and the better you get it and the more frequently you do it the more people expect it from you you're having a conversations that that's deeper than one you would have with a super close friend probably 100% and there's not like an added level of stress it's like, yeah, we could both be in this conversation and we're both learning something from it. You emphasize this importance of skillful communication in the heat of the moment. So mm -hmm. let's chat just for a second on that. How about engaging in a conversation where someone really deeply disagrees with you? How can we make that be generative? Right. I'm going to share something that I was just in a workshop myself, which, by the way, we could have another conversation about. I think it's really important as faculty that we're learners. And that we take workshops. Yeah, that's huge. I, I've noticed you here as a workshop participant as much as as a teacher, and that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and I, 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 I to me, I, I'm so uh, grateful for it because this is the environment that I find so conducive to my own learning, where I can make mistakes and I can learn, and and I can kind of push the edges of what I'm doing, so that when I'm teaching. I, I will have already been in those edges and then I can hold those spaces. So like I can't hold a space unless I've been well beyond that space and then I can hold the space. So I could really push myself to the edges of spaces I haven't been and then come and hold a space with a tremendous amount of confidence and compassion for people to go places that are edges for them. Absolutely. I mean, that makes me trust you as a person who teaches leadership. You know, I'm, I'm actually in some senses, deeply distrustful of leadership in general. I, I went to a summer camp when I was younger and they promised to make a leader out of you. I went year after year. They never made a leader out of me <laughs> because in, in some sense, I didn't want people to follow me. Right. I didn't want to persuade right. people. Right. And then in, on another hand, the leaders who were in charge of me, I mean, I grew up during the Reagan era. The, <laughs> the, the PTL ministries were 
local <laughs> right. to me. There's televangelism right. in my childhood. So leaders right. are liars to me. Right. Um, but hearing you talk about learning, that to me really imbues leadership with, with, with authenticity and character. And it takes emotional courage to learn. Like it, it actually takes tremendous emotion because to learn, uh, and this is for any, I'm, I'm going to use myself as an example, but it's for anyone who's learning. Like when we learn, we have to admit we don't know. We have to admit we're not skilled at something. We have to admit that there's room for growth. It seems so obvious and we should all do it. I was I was at a, a retreat center and um, doing a doing a workshop and I met a woman who was leading a workshop at that same retreat center, not leading the workshop that I was in. She had been drinking. It was a you know an evening part. It was, the workshop day was over, but it was evening, and she had been kind of drinking and and I think smoking. And we got into this brief conversation, and she said, "Wow, you're taking a workshop. That's awesome. I wish I could take workshops." And I said, "Well, that's so interesting. Why don't you?" And she said, "Well, because I teach workshops." And and I said, "And why don't you?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, because my students wouldn't." Like I, 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 they wouldn't trust me if they felt like I, I didn't know the stuff that I'm teaching. Mm. And I said, Crazy. I said, yeah, I said, you know, I don't want to be harsh here, but I wouldn't trust you as a leader. You leapt into that difficult conversation right, right away. Yeah, Peter right. Bregman style. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to be harsh here, but I wouldn't trust you as a leader if I didn't see you learning next to me. Like, I, I, I wouldn't trust that. And then I also said, and I'm very curious about this place where you're comfortable being drunk and high with your students, but you're not comfortable learning with your students. Wow. And, and, I, and I'm so curious about that space. And I think the truth is, and the conversation didn't last that long, but I think the truth is drunk and high mutes your feelings so you don't have to feel anything. And learning actually excites the feelings. Like you feel things when you learn. You might fail more often. You're probably failing more often when you're learning. So so you're failing more. You're looking silly more. You're making more mistakes. Learning feels uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? Learning feels uncomfortable. Now you might like that. I actually kind of like the discomfort of learning because... You know, I know, like, if I break my arm, I'm not going to like that. But if that same pain is after the arm's broken and I think it's rebuilding itself, I'm much more comfortable tolerating that. It could be the same pain. But if it's going to negative territory, it's scary to me and I think everything's going to get worse and the pain's much worse. If it's, like, pain that's leading to healing, then I'm much more excited about it and I'm much more willing to tolerate it. And learning to me is like pain that leads to healing. Now, is there an element inside of these uh, difficult conversations that have an element of argumentation? Is there an element of learning in the ones that are generative and useful? A hundred percent. So so one of the examples that I was in a conversation with someone over these last couple of days is the difference between calling out someone and calling in someone. Yeah, we're such a call-out culture, we're especially call in the in the uh, social media space and whatnot. Yeah, and here's the thing about calling out. It's super easy to do. It's super comfortable. You don't have to... The emotion you feel is anger. Anger comes from not wanting to feel vulnerability. So the hard emotion is to say, I'm threatened here. I'm scared. And this idea of calling in is to, to actually stay in the vulnerability, mm -hmm. but don't stay away from the real conversation. 
to be able to say, hey, you just said this thing that really scares me. And so the only place, the only way to break through a conversation like that is with curiosity. And my next move isn't going to be to attack you back or to shame you or to prove you wrong. It's going to be to ask you a question. Let's talk about feedback. You, you, you make some great points about asking for feedback. And it's something that, that's come into my mind very recently. And I think back to my 20s. I don't know that I asked for feedback even once. It's like I was scared of receiving the message that what I was doing was unacceptable. So instead of changing what I was doing, I was really just buried my head under the sand. You asked the question, can we walk through life with a longing to be changed? Hmm. So talk to me about feedback. God, this, it's such a deep thing, this longing to be changed, right? Like who among us longs to be changed? I mean, lots of people will say like, yeah, I want to be changed. Change is great. Yeah, let's get changed. But like how many times have you gone into a political conversation going, I hope they have a point that changes my perspective? Never. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we don't, we basically go through like trying to convince everybody else that to have our opinion because it makes us feel better when people agree with us. I think that's why people say like no politics at this party or no politics at this dinner table. Yeah, because or no religion or no. Right. right. And like what I'm into is like I uh, my wife is a uh, I'm Jewish. My wife is a minister and we do a lot of this interfaith work. And I really like interfaith work because it's like, how do you have like these are the conversations they told you never to talk about at dinner table. So let's actually sit down. And now we're working with people in relationships with each other who are different faiths. Eleanor and I are different faiths. Like really. And how do you build a relationship if you're going to argue for your point all the time? Like, let me tell you, newsflash. It's not going to work. Like if you're going in this relationship thinking I'm going to convince my partner of everything I believe, it's not going to work. So it, it's, it's, but it's the, it's the most counterintuitive thing in the world. Like I'm going to go into a conversation with someone I totally disagree with, with an intent to have my view expanded, changed, shifted in some way. People don't resist change. They don't, we don't resist change. It's like such a commonplace idea. So often repeated people resist change. They don't. We resist being changed. Okay. So I'll make choices to change all the time, but you want to change me? Forget it. Even if I wanted to go there, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to lose control because I don't want you to change me. So you think about that. If you buy that, which I do, and I, you know, I do based on learning and experience, et cetera. And by the way, some people might be listening to this and going like, I don't like change. That's fine. You know, like that's fine too. But for sure, if you don't like change, you definitely don't like being changed by someone else. So if we stop trying to change the people around us and get super curious about what's going on for them and why they believe that they believe in what you will immediately see is they soften. Yeah. Right. If you actually want to change someone's perspective, start listening to them. It's totally counterintuitive. But if you want to, if I want to change your perspective, my best shot at doing that is to listen to you. Yeah. And you will then feel heard and get curious yourself. Okay. If, if you have an opinion of me, what a gift to me to know what it is. Now, I might not do anything about it. You might say, you know, Peter... 
here's what I think about you. And I might go, huh, thanks for sharing that. And I might walk away going, I totally disagree with it. Or I might go away going, wow, that's a really interesting perspective. Or I might go away going, I don't know what I think about that, but I'm going to watch what happens. But whatever it is, it's a gift. Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, you know, no, I know my blind spots. Right. And I'm like, here's the thing that defies the definition of blind spot. Like by definition, you don't see your blind spot. And I love it. I was just recently in a conversation with someone and someone who knows me pretty well. And we've done some work together. And, and he brought it up because I said to him, tell me something I don't know. And he's like, you know, the way you deal with money sometimes. I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally got that. Right. I'm like, that's a great I, that's a great one. Right. So he says also with you you have a little bit of thing with credit, with taking credit and status and, and being recognized. I think what he said was being recognized. And I sat for a second and I'm like, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not, that's not a thing. Like, I actually don't really care. And he said, yeah, it's interesting that it feels different to you. I'd still think a little bit about that. <laughs> right? And he goes, and I'm like, oh, so maybe this is a blind spot, right? Because I totally don't see it. And so to recognize that when someone gives you feedback that you don't see, that is this massive gift. And then it's like, okay, I've got something to learn here. You make a great point when you say that the act of asking for feedback actually builds confidence. Right? When you, first of all, when you ask for it, you're, you have some control. Like it's not some random person going, hey, by the way, are you open to some feedback? And you're always saying yes, but you know, half the time you're like, no, but you're like, say yes, because you don't want to be the person who says no. But when you're asking for it, you're inviting somebody to, to step in. So you're making it easier for them and you've asked for it. So it's actually easier to receive it. And then when you receive it and you can hold it, you realize you're stronger. Every act of emotional courage builds emotional courage, right? It's like a muscle. Like if I use my muscles, they get bigger. So when I take a risk, that allows me to then take another risk, to take another risk. It builds my capacity to feel things. about the TED Talk. What kind of tools from your tool bag enable you to give a talk that is effective? I sort of talked about performance versus learning mindsets, right? This performance that, you know, yes. right, that, that uh, Carol Dweck wrote this book about growth mindset. And it's really this difference between a growth and a fixed mindset. Like, am I willing to learn? Or am I willing to learn? I feel the same thing about speaking. So a lot of people go into speaking as a performance. Yeah. I'm not interested I'm really not interested in performing. Like I find it so uninteresting. And when I feel like someone is performing in front of me, I lose interest unless it's a performance, right? Unless it's like, you know, I'm going to the theater and I want to see someone act. But if it's a speaker, I'm super not interested. I want to see a human being up there. And, and, and I can relate, a human being I can relate to and uh, who has heart. And so I think, I hope when I get up and talk and I do this, you know, I've given talks to the, my biggest crowd was 100,000 people, right? Which was like videoed out and people were in auditoriums around. And, and I'm having this conversation with you, right? One person in a room. 
what you experience in our conversation, I hope, and my intention is, is what 5,000 people or 100,000 people are going to experience when I'm talking, which is it's not rehearsed. And I have some things I want to say, but I'm having a conversation with one person or 100,000 people. And it's as much as possible for me coming from with like, I'm feeling things like I'm not performing. I'm talking and I'm sharing things that I feel are really important to me. And I feel like to the world, to my kids, to, you know, the kind of world, like I'm basically doing everything I can to build the world that I want to live in. Is there an extemporaneous uh, element to your speeches? I've, I've been very thoughtful about the structure of the speech and what I want to cover, but I'd never rehearse it. And, and I'm in a conversation. And like the other day I was starting to give a speech. It was, 150 senior HR people. And I was talking about my book, Leading with Emotional Courage. And I went to the first slide and I started talking and this hand got raised. And I was like, I mean, like, I have not even started this speech yet. And they asked me a question. And then I kind of answered that question and I'm about to head back and another hand raised. And I look at the crowd and I go, ah, I see how this is going to go. Okay, the slides weren't that interesting anyway. Let's shut off that and let's have a conversation. Open to curiosity and the power of vulnerability, even on stage. Especially. Eslan's reason for being is human potential. I was wondering if you could expound upon what human potential means for you and what part of that aligns with your work. That's a great question. I think we can get caught up in potential in ways that aren't necessarily helpful. And I think there's a way of thinking about potential that that is helpful. And and I and I'll tell you, I'll speak out of my own experience because I get caught up with this. Like I want to keep getting better. So there's this way of saying, like when someone says, oh, you have so much potential, right? What that means is you're not there yet, <laughs> right? It's, it's like saying like, I believe that you have a great capacity, but I'm not seeing it. And yes, like I think there's truth to that. We all have so much potential. And I think our best shot at reaching our potential is to start and maybe I'm just talking to myself here, is to stop trying so hard. So like to settle into a sense of enoughness and to operate out of that place. I've often thought of my work and I've been playing around with writing a book of this name called Soul Coaching, right? Which is like your soul has a longing. And because of that, there's all the stuff that gets in the way because longing is scary. Right? When you long for something, by definition, there's fear around it. And so potential isn't about growing into something that you're not. It's about degunking everything. Like it's about getting rid of all of the stuff that's in the way of who you are. Esalen is a place, in my experience, where you can really take risks and other people will take risks that allow you to go places that you wouldn't otherwise go that are not safe to go otherwise in the real world often. And you can expand your capacity to act and to confront your fears and to 
try things you wouldn't really be able to try otherwise. And then having had that experience and built your emotional courage, right? Built your willingness to feel, go back into the world that you live in on a regular basis and do things you wouldn't have done otherwise. And unless we get out of that space we're always in and those routines and take those risks in a safe place, right? You know, the, the, the most fertile ground for learning is when the perceived risk is high and the actual risk is low. So when I run a program, when I'm designing a program, I'm designing a program to increase the perceived risk and decrease the actual risk. What can I do that people will feel is risky, but has zero consequences? And if I could get people in that space, they're going to learn. And then you've gone to these places and you've expanded your capacity to act and you've followed your own longing and you've discovered something about yourself, right? Because you've had the capacity, the ability to change just a little because you've been in that safe space. Peter Bregman, thank you so much for talking to us about the power of vulnerability, the importance of curiosity, how to degunk your life to achieve your maximum potential and always leading with emotional courage. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Shannon Hudson, and Greg Archer. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music is by Gumpop. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. 